I don't. I don't think you can really say this movie has a happy ending. It has an ending. No, but I mean happy ending. <laughs> exactly. Norman gets caught. I guess that's the silver lining here. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. This is the show where we talk to fans and critics alike, uh, really democratizing the film criticism community and have a guest on every episode to talk about a film that really impacted him or her and uh, kind of shaped their their subjective view of film. You know, I, I'm of the mindset that art is... Uh, any art of any kind, but in this case, obviously, cinema is very dependent on perspective, and everyone comes at film, the world of film, from a fresh angle, as uh, as our show tries to uh, tries to endorse. So, this episode, I am joined by Roderick Colbert. So, Roderick, good to have you on the show. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. So. Um, to, you know, usually this is a point where I have my guests explain a little bit about who they are, how we know each other. So why don't you introduce yourself? I guess we know each other from college. I was part of the University Film and Video Association for a number of years. I was the president and um, did many events together. I think you used to come to a couple of my meetings. There, there for the um, University Film Video Association, I did a lot of really fun stuff. You know, uh, we put together a university um, uh, film fest. We did uh, a couple of music video shows. Uh, we did a four-hour film challenge. Um, did a, quite a few things. You know, I was known for when I was the president of the film club to always have always have an outline of what the meeting was. That was something I was very compulsive about. So when people came to the meetings for the first time, it looked really organized. And I would always have some question at the beginning of the movie, like, uh, what is, who's your favorite actor? And then we would look up on YouTube. Um, a clip from that favorite actor. And people used to really like it, like doing that. So um, I don't know if I did that. I probably did that when you came to my beats. I used to do that all the time. I think so. That sounds familiar, yeah. <laughs> people told me they used to enjoy that. So what are, you, uh, what are you up to these days? What are you working on that people can, uh, to, can check out? Okay, well, certainly I'm, I'm promoting my second annual Sigmund Freud Film Festival. Uh, I have a master's degree in um, instructional technology, and part of that... It's out of the ed College of Education at USF. And part of that is that you do uh, psychology. So I enjoy uh, educational psychology. So you're always exposed, exposed to the theories of Sigmund Freud, which I was exposed to all my life because I have a, a late stepmother who was a psychiatrist, and she would have books by Sigmund Freud. And they're very interesting. You know, he's certainly a person who, a, a, a well-known personality in history, not unlike the person that we'll be discussing uh, for this podcast, a very large life character based on his thoughts. So I did, so last year I did a film festival dedicated to Sigmund Freud. It was Sigmund Freud um, Film Festival and Challenge where we did a call for entries um, for people who did films that related about Sigmund Freud or about psychiatry in general, as well as it had a component of competitive films where people had to um, submit short films based on certain um, elements. So that, like a lot of other film challenges, where you have to um, conform your video to certain parameters so that everyone uh, kind of is making something similar but different, it was like that for Sigmund Freud. But in this case, they had to uh, 
pick or choose a Sigmund Freud theme, such as the Oedipal Complex, Omnipotence, and Narcissism. And, um, and that's what people did. And um, people told me they enjoyed it. When we did the screening in Carrollwood, there were people who came up to me and said they really enjoyed a film festival based on this because so so little film, particularly come out of Hollywood, is very thought-provoking. They really thought that this was something that was very much needed. They were surprised it's something that started in Tampa. They thought this was something that people would have thought of before. But, no, I thought of it. So, so this year we're doing the second annual. Um, and this year I hope to, you know, take, uh, build it up a little bit more, promote it a little bit more, um, bring in um, maybe some film experts who have done some research in film theory, on Sigmund Freud in film theory. Um, so that's what I hope to do. And that happens May 5th or 6th. We're still working out the, the venue. Last year we had the Bellagio. So I'm trying to find out if the Bellagio May um, 5th is available. I didn't necessarily want to do it May 6th because that's actually Sigmund it's, I actually wanted to kind of have it around Sigmund Freud's birthday, which is May 6th. But, oh, wow. but May 6th is on a um, Monday. That's not always the best time to do yeah. a uh, movie screening. So I thought Sunday would be a little bit better because sometimes, sometimes people don't have anything else to do and they might be interested in seeing a couple. So, so right now you're currently look, trying to do you, uh, get people involved and things like that? Yeah, doing a call for entry. You know, we have it, right, on film, right. we have it currently on Film Freeway. Um, Sigmund Freud Film Festival and Challenge. If you go to Film Free Range, just put Sigmund Freud. Um, there's no, no other movie, there's no other film festival dedicated to Sigmund Freud, at least not that I know about in the past two weeks. <laughs> That's the last time I've been on <laughs> Film Freeway. But, um, and also, too, we're trying to incorporate the uh, Freud Museum in London. They haven't been, um, I don't want to say they haven't been corrupted. I just haven't heard from them. But, right. uh, but, that's what I'm that's trying. A, to. That's a great idea, you know. Really, and a lot of everybody knows who Sigmund Freud is, but I feel like you'd be surprised how many people don't really know a lot of his theories or a lot of the, uh, you know, what made him such a pioneer in in, in psychology. Um, and I think this is an interesting way to kind of spread his spread his work and, by getting people to express themselves creatively and, and things like that. And the fact that so everybody just gets to pick a different theory to illustrate in their film. It's not I'm like pretty, uh, pretty much last like year a, I, I, yeah. I tried to assign one, but that didn't kind of work out so well because um, sometimes people didn't know his theories and, or they right. wanted a particular one. And then so and then I thought that maybe like two people would do Oedipal Complex, but that right. didn't, I would think that, that would be the most that, popular. That didn't end up being a problem. So um, so this year they can either pick one of, of their own or I can assign them one. So um, um, so. So, I, so, so this year, what I'm actually trying to do, maybe a little bit different, differently, is to um, is to have um, a more of an element of uh, of people really incorporating how a certain film um, highlights the theme of the theory. Okay. Um, okay. Last year, last last year, a lot of people just gave me anything they thought was weird. <laughs> And said it was and said it was about Sigmund Freud, or it was something psych psychological. So, right. uh, and I just took it because you know they paid the entry fee. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> but this year I'm trying to um, do things that are really tailored to Sigmund Freud, and also have judges who have more of a psychiatry background. Um, right, right. That's you, you know, you you mentioned that um, 
that not many people know about Sigmund Freud, but actually some of his strongest critics are people from the psychology field who, really? um, yeah, who, yeah. Actually, who actually don't like his theories and, and um, think they're um, outdated or just don't like him in general, which has actually happened during his lifetime. You know, during his lifetime, he had a lot of people who did not like his theories, even some of, yeah. his, even some of his disciples like Carl Jung disavowed a lot of his theory. Very, very controversial figure. Uh, but, I mean, still probably one of the ones that everybody still knows his name, everybody remembers him. I mean, uh, even as a kid, when I before I studied anything about psychology, I was like, hey, Sigmund Freud, that's the guy from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. As a little kid, you're like, I've heard of him from that. You yeah. know, and so he's just such, uh, he's such a, a prominent figure in the cultural zeitgeist. Uh, even away from from his uh, field, so it's and it's inter- it's you know it's really fitting that that you're promoting something about psychology when the film we're about to talk about is very much a psychological horror film. Absolutely. <laughs> so I think that ties in really well. I don't know if you chose this film on purpose to illustrate some of uh, you know to to tie into your uh, upcoming film festival, but that that works really well. Um, and I'll definitely. It's, it's, it's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> good. I was gonna say, you gotta, it's all about it's all about branding, and yeah, that's very on brand for uh, for what you're, what you're currently working on. Um, and I'll definitely put a uh, put a link to uh, the Film Freeway page uh, in the post for this uh, episode on CrookedTable.com. So um, I just, yeah, of course, of course. So. Um, I, uh, let's just go ahead and announce what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about the 1960 Alfred Hitchcock classic, Psycho. So let's listen to a little bit of the trailer right now. An old house, which is, if I may say so, a little more sinister looking, less innocent than the motel itself. And in this house, the most dire, horrible events took place. I think we can go inside because the place is up for sale. Although I don't know who's going to buy it now. That was a little bit of the trailer from Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Uh, and I was just telling Roderick before we started recording that it's it's really funny that the trailer for this movie is so... Uh, he's You know, he, Hitchcock was so concerned with not giving away spoilers. And we'll talk about the the um, you know his policy during the theatrical run. But the the trailer is just basically six and a half minutes of him walking around the Bates Motel and the Bates home. Even back then, now, six and a half minute trailer never happens. I mean, the only time you see things like that now are if it's like a sizzle reel coming out of Comic-Con for like a, a Marvel or DC movie or something like that. It's a film that came out relatively late in his career. And it's a very much a departure to everything he's done. And they didn't even actually agree to finance it at his usual rate because they thought it was going to be a failure. So, you know, a lot of the, the techniques that we associate with Bob uh, Hitchcock, like making special appearance in his movie and his dry humor, lots of times that happens later in this, in this part of his career. So he's kind of like showing his kind of typical British dry humor uh, because he feels like he can, you know. You know, he's, he's, already, he's already a very well-known director. He was already he was Steven Spielberg of his day. So he felt that he had a lot of leeway to do really what he wanted. And in particular, in Psycho, he financed it himself. So even if he, he was completely um, um, a commercial play, failure, it's something that he felt he really wanted to make. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think I in some of my research, I came across that he actually uh, deferred a lot of his pay as well 
and in in exchange for I think a percentage of the grosses, which is that one of is that one of the first instances of that happening? I mean, that's kind of commonplace now. Oh, I, I wouldn't doubt it, particularly since you know studio heads were kind of like gods back then, you know, um, and people were and actors and actresses were easily replaceable. They're not they're kind of replaceable now either too, but yeah, uh, oh yeah. yeah. But even back then, they were, you know, Studi has really called the shots. And it's at that point, he was pretty much, you know, news broke, I think, yesterday or the day before that we're getting a, uh, a new Christopher Nolan movie in 2020. And Warner Brothers listed as untitled Christopher Nolan event film with just a release date because he's such a name director that you don't need. We don't nobody really needs the details to start getting excited about it. And Hitchcock was very much uh, very much that for his time. Um, so going into, you know, what, what is it about, why did you choose this film and what, you know, what is your history with it? When did you first see it and how has your appreciation for it changed over time? Well, you know, both, like most people who are not 60 years old, <laughs> we didn't see, I didn't see it when it first came out. Um, and, um, I probably saw, I believe I saw it as a teenager. Um, I went to the down, caught the bus, uh, downtown Tampa. To, went to the Tampa Theater and, and saw it there. That's why I saw it the first time. And um, and, it, and most people who, had, who were there probably had already seen the movie, so they all start clapping, applauding when the shower scene was about to happen. And mm-hmm. all, although you have a sense you know it's going to happen, you know, um, it's still amazing to see um, the audience reaction to this very classic scene. Um, I, I guess my initial reaction to it is that I just thought that it was a very rich film. And it's a film unlike other cinematic, cinematic classics like 2001, A Space Odyssey, um, uh, what else? Close Encounters of the Third Kind or Citizen Kane. One of those movies, I, I instantly thought that this is a movie that you have to see at least three times. I think any classic movie you have to see it at least three times. One, just to see what the movie's about. Two, to, two, to uh, really be able to digest it. And then the third time, just to let your brain go through and see it all over again, just as a regular. Mm-hmm. And then you really see the richness of the movie. Um, I don't know if I, if we're at the point to discuss this, but I actually think the shower scene isn't isn't my favorite scene of, of the movie. It's certainly oh, a very, yeah. it's certainly a very powerful scene in the movie, and it's most noteworthy. But uh, uh, my favorite actual scene of the movie is actually towards the end, where. Uh, you find out the truth about mother. And it, the light just flashes through the whole scene. I just think that's just a master of storytelling. And, and I think and since film is the language of vision, you know, um, it's an unspoken language, just what uh, I think Albert Hitchcock is unconsciously telling you is that this is when the whole um, story is really coming to life when she hits that that lamp in the cellar and the lamp flooded with light. And I remember seeing that for the very first time when I saw it uh, all those years ago. And I just thought that uh, that's 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 the master, that's how he is such a master of suspense. He's, he's able to take um, a story and he's able to convey the story visually, uh, not only through the words and the acting, but also in what you see on the film. He, he's a true story, visual storyteller. Uh, I think that's why his legacy endures, because he was the master of that. And as an African-American, I don't use that word master lightly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think I didn't see really see the film in full until 
college, and I, I took a summer course at, at the University of South Florida at USF, and uh, that was one of the films we saw, and I remembered the shower scene, but I don't know if I 100%, as I was watching it, remembered the, the, you know, the big twist, the mother reveal towards the end. Uh, until it happened, and I was like, "Oh yeah, that's right. I've heard about that. The way the way that that goes." Um, but uh, I mean, if people in, in 1960, they might must have had their minds blown by this film. I mean, it's would you consider it's very much his probably his most iconic movie, uh, just because it's had such a legacy. I mean, this this one had uh, had three sequels, I believe, a TV series that just only ended a couple years ago, and uh, a much maligned shot for shot remake uh, yeah. back in 1998. Which um, I thought, which I actually thought was pretty good. Uh, it's not bad, but it's it's there's certain there's certain things in it that I did like. There's uh, I think there's like a shot that he wanted to open. Hitch Hitchcock wanted to open the film, kind of panning over the city into the the kind of seedy hotel room, um, and he couldn't accomplish that shot. So Gus Van Sant actually did that in the new in the the remake. Um, and there's a few other touches here and there that are. are um, kind of embellishing what uh, Hitchcock was going for or, you know, uh, bringing elements that he wanted to put in but were too risque or whatever for, for the time. Uh, but it's also, it's a little bit like the, the Beauty and the Beast movie from a couple years ago. It's like, <laughs> it's fine for what it is, but it's also basically a recreation of something that was perfect to begin with. So it's, you're never going to match that. You're, only, you're, only, you're always going to fall short. Because um, it uses the exact same script, the same iconic uh, Bernard Herrmann score, that kind of thing. I don't know. I'm not as harsh of a critic of remakes as most people are, because um, you know nothing's really new under the sun. Even yeah, even, true. even the the movie Psycho is uh, an adaptation. You know, when he made it, the studio did not like it. <laughs> didn't like the movie. His movie Psycho. <laughs> so <laughs> they didn't think it was a masterpiece. <laughs> the visual storytelling. You know, I think that's an art mm -hmm. that. That Alfred Hitch, that was probably unique to Alfred Hitchcock and unique to um, that era of, of filmmaking. You know, um, when people went to the movie theaters to see something that was visually powerful, I don't know if people necessarily have that same type of. Um, they're probably a little more jaded now in what they see in the right. film, but but then they did. You know, as as, you, as often said that you know uh, people stopped taking showers when that movie came out. Um, the whole idea of showing a toilet in the scene was controversial. Mm -hmm. yep. So it's kind of hard to remake, to remake, to put something that was for a certain time period and update it for that. Right. I mean, you can see through, laced throughout the film, there's a lot of sort of taboo things. I mean, you see Janet Lee in a bra. You see the toilet, like you mentioned, yeah. the toilet flushing. And I actually read that. Uh, Joseph Stefano, the screenwriter, they kind of constructed it in a way that the toilet flushing was integral to the plot so that that couldn't really be, you know, the the, uh, the ratings association. I guess it was still the MPAA back then or whoever, um, that they couldn't excise that or give them notes to that or remove that because it's, it's a key part of the story. The fact that, you know, Lila fi finds the clue near the toilet of the little scrap of paper with the numbers on it and everything. Uh, you know, even the fact that the movie opens and the heroine is is you know meeting up with her boyfriend in like a clandestine like a big like like a, a seedy motel uh, not unlike the Bates motel to a certain extent uh, there's a lot of elements of that uh, that um, you know that he was really trying to see how how much he could get away with yeah. and as, as you mentioned like yeah I did read also that Janet Lee supposedly after seeing this movie 
from the rest from that point on took baths the rest of her life there's, there's a yeah. million legends behind the making of this movie and that's why i actually really want to read the book the hitchcock and the making of psycho that, that you know that you mentioned that hitchcock film with anthony hopkins is based on because I, I think it would be really interesting to kind of delve into that world yeah you know the thing is that when you read about so much of the making of the movie you, you start to wonder if there's any other classics you know in movie um history that were never made or weren't made at all because for some reason because the movie almost never got made um mm -hmm. if, you, if, you, if you if you did in the research too it shows that uh, alfred hitchcock didn't want that that violin music in in the murder scene and that's right. such an integral part of the of the movie <laughs> you can't even imagine the movie without that now but he didn't originally, no, I, want, he didn't originally want it in there it was supposed to be silent i remember he mentioned and then later on i uh, he credited Bernard Herrmann for like I think he said like thirty percent of yeah. of the success of the film, which is a big deal because it seems like uh, Hitchcock was very much an egotist in a lot of ways. And uh, you know, there's always, of course, all this in the decades since all these stories that came out about how he treated his actresses, and now, of course, that's very you know frowned upon and like it's very controversial in a certain way. What are your thoughts about kind of the methods that he went with uh, in order to achieve the desired result of the film? Oh, Oh, hey, he would have been the original Harvey Fire, Harvey Weinstein, you know. Uh, very, <laughs> I, was, very I was alluding to that element, <laughs> more or less, yeah. Very demanding, you know, supposedly sexually harassed his, um, uh, his starlets, but he thought that was a way of getting a good performance out of them. Right. So um, so maybe he was the R. Kelly of his time. You know? Oh, God. <laughs> his, 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 um, his psychological uh, makeup was part of his art. <laughs> So it fits, yeah. fits, so it fits well in with um, Freudian thing. You know, it's interesting if you read a lot about um, Sigmund, uh, Sigmund Freud, about Alfred Hitchcock's life, you know, he had his own issues, you know, supposedly very afraid of the police. And, you know, and he was he was a child born in Victorian age. So um, he has, in, in many of his films, he has a lot of underlying psychological things that you really don't catch on to that were forbidden at the time. Like his movie Rope is actually about a actual case of two gay men who murdered someone. But but their homosexuality is not mentioned at all in the movie. It's completely um um I don't want to say under wraps, but it's it's certainly understated. Um in the right. birds in the birds there's a there's a school teacher played by a very young Susan Plachette. It implies that she's a lesbian, but you don't really catch on to it unless you're really noting it. And I think it's and I think that's reflective of maybe the time period he lived in. And oh, yeah, I for sure. and I and I think that kind of um, repression probably probably made him a much better filmmaker, you know, because he had to um, push the envelope. You know, when I first I always like to tell people this um, this little segue that when I first was a freshman in college <clears throat> years ago <laughs> that. Um, I had a, we had to write uh, a freshman English essay about something that we were really interested in that was related mm -hmm. to film. Film. So I picked the film codes. I know I'm sure when you're 18 year olds, that's something you're dying to write about the film, the film codes um, that that were actually placed on filmmaking throughout the years. So you know you have the Motion Picture of America, which is the lobbying group for Hollywood that actually tried to push, that was actually created to push back against all these film codes that the government put on film. One of the um, restrictions that a lot of the film codes put on until the really 60s is that evil could not be justified in, a, in your film. They literally 
would um, rate your film or censor your film if it had certain philosophical viewpoints. And one of the viewpoints in the early film codes was that evil can never be justified. And you know, you know, Alfred Hitchcock was always was part of filmmaking from silent films right up to early days of color film. So his filmmaking was actually part of it was part of that film code era. So um, so he wanted to be a professional filmmaker, someone that was very successful what he did, but he also wanted to push the envelope. So I think that's a lot of a lot of what he did in filmmaking, because um, he he wanted to uh, explore certain things, and he knew that um, the audience would catch on to it unconsciously. And I think that's probably what why he's such enduring as a, a well-known filmmaker, because when you watch a lot of his films, they have a lot of richness. I know we're talking about Psycho, but... It, but in the, <laughs> no, no, it, I mean, it, it bears, you know, a wider discussion of Hitchcock. But I know in The Birds, to me, it's just a lot more blatant in The Birds, you know, how there's scenes where the birds are judging people, the way they attack the city, you know, the the actress, that when she comes in and she's like this interloper and she's not accepted by the, the community where she is, and then the birds start attacking. You know, I don't think that people think this way when they're making films because they lack the same literary context that he lived in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and I think that's why his style of filmmaking is difficult to reproduce. And I think that's even true in, in, in Psycho. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, a lot of his film techniques in Psycho, you know, where he shoots, you know, from, from above, um, the jump scares, which were, I don't know if Alfred Hitchcock pioneered the jump scare. I mean, I'm not willing to say that without doing more research, but certainly... Well, a lot of people kind of consider this... A lot of people very much consider, I think, Psycho kind of the first slasher film in a way. Oh, yeah. I mean, there were thrillers, there were horror films like that, but without this film, and I, you know, in my research I even came across, John Carpenter was very uh, influenced by this when he did Halloween. Without this film, there wouldn't be Halloween, there wouldn't be that oh, whole breakout of, of the slasher movies in the 80s and things like that that has kind of cycled around every decade or so in Hollywood as like a major trend in the genre. Um, so, you know, I mean, yeah, I think that's that's probably, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he, uh, if this was one of the first films to at least, if not create the jump scare, at least popularize it. Yeah, and also Brian De Palma and M. Night Shyamalan were definitely big, have always stated their big influence of Albert Hitchcock. Oh, yeah. I don't think you can be a filmmaker and not be influenced by Albert Hitchcock because Every film is probably based on a film that he has made. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, after this, you, know, you mentioned you mentioned Shyamalan. Right after the Sixth Sense, whether it's just the the uh, the kind of atmosphere of that film or or the big twist. I mean, every every time a, a horror film comes out like that, that has that certain level of craft to it. Yeah. Um, inevitably, the Hitchcock comparisons. Uh, you know, follow, and uh, that's something that's kind of dogged Shyamalan a little bit. A lot of his career is that he hasn't—he's been more inconsistent than I think Hitchcock uh, was in his time. Um, just for, you know, from the beginning of the movie, you were talking about like a lot of how um, his his purpose and a lot of what he's saying is really kind of baked into the film on an unconscious level. I mean, just from the very beginning with the the Bernard Herrmann score, which is all strings. And uh, the way that the credits kind of break apart and it's very chaotic, it's already kind of trying to create this kind of disorienting effect on on the viewers. Um, 
even to his, his deliberate use of black and white. I mean, he did Vertigo, I think, a couple years before this, which was in color. So um, part of it was, from what I read, part of it was that he was trying to keep the budget low to have a, kind of have this be a, uh, a low-budget, high-quality film and putting the emphasis on the story and the performances and the, the art of what he was trying to do rather than infusing a lot of money into it. Um, but part of it's that. But also, like you know, I think this is another way that the remake... Uh, doesn't live up to it is that um, the black and white really lends a lot to to the film as far as uh, the the kind of overwhelming sense of dread that you feel right from the very beginning. Yeah, I would agree. Um, also, too, you know, um, there's an interesting um, um, YouTuber who does nothing but film analysis. I think he's some mm-hmm. film professor, and he uh, actually looks at uh, Psycho as uh, science kind of this uh, story of good versus evil. The fact that, you know, the character at the beginning and how that, you know, even within that context of a film code, he's still not, he's still kind of not really justifying evil because, you know, she does get murdered at the end. She doesn't get away. Right, that's, a, that's a good point. Um, that's a good point. And then, and what's interesting when he analyzes that, movie, he talks about how the little shifts in the filmmaking, you know, the, the cop that pulls her over and he looks looks at her through the mirror, and he has these really dark, menacing uh, sunglasses. And you can imagine mm-hmm. that probably looked really weird in, in the cinema of 1960, you know, probably very foreboding. Probably nothing that you would raise your eyebrow nowadays when you're watching something on a video on your phone or on your computer screen. But certainly in a right. movie theater in 1960, it probably was a lot more menacing. And then as she's driving along, uh, as the suite is, is, is being um, played, and it turns from day to night when she approaches... Uh, the baseball hotel and it's already night and it's raining. It really sets the mood that you know evil is about to happen. I think in the, the you know watching it again, it, it really struck me how how much the film is is illustrating that the the deck is really stacked against uh, Mary and like as it's going along, like her boss spots her and uh, you, you know she makes all these mistakes along the way because she's, she's you know she's never done she's not like an she's not a, an expert thief this is very much a kind of spur of the moment spontaneous i'm going to take this money and and uh, you know have a life with my my boyfriend and kind of get us out of uh, out of this predicament that we're stuck in because you know the film really goes to great lengths to illustrate the stakes from the beginning like we're together but we can't get together because i'm in financial straits and how are we going to figure this out you know it in that one scene that he accomplishes so much and as because really the first half of the film is all about Marion, as it progresses you can start seeing her get get herself in deeper and deeper and deeper and i really one of the things that i really love um is the way that the uh while she's driving we have the voiceover of of her imagining all the conversations happening and like kind of the, in the aftermath of, yeah, her, of her running away i love that that's one of my favorite uh touches that he pulls here you know, in many places, some people uh, I've read felt that that's kind of like uh, moralizing, just a, a justification of the, the moralizing that happens in her head, as well as the voice that happened from um, from the mother that you hear later on, mm-hmm. uh, which, which is actually uh, pretty interesting to, to look at. You know, you know, mind you that you say that, you know, I think part of the reason why I can't say say that for sure, because I'm putting myself in the mind of the Paramount executive 60 years ago. But I have, a, I have a hunch that the real reason why they did not care for the film is that it wasn't a typical linear film at the time. It was much no. From what he normally does. You know, the plot's not that complicated, you know. It's not this typical three-act play. 
where you know, um, um, you know, you're not really sure who even the antagonists or protagonists in the movie really are. Uh, well, and it shifts halfway through, and you know, then there's a lot of there's many long periods where there isn't very much on-screen dialogue to speak of. You're either following Marianne in the car or Norman cleaning up the the shower, cleaning up the bathroom. Like there's long periods of essentially silence, and uh, so I can only imagine how much of a risk that that posed to the studio back in 1960 when this had never been done before. I, and I feel that's probably why Alfred Hitchcock chose to go ahead and finance it because he, he knew that it was a risky film to make, you know. Um, but, you know, he wanted to make something different. Um, my research said he made it right after he made North by Northwest, which was made with Cary Grant. You know, it was very much a typical, which was a good movie, by the way, <laughs> North by Northwest. Yeah, yeah. I, I think those films probably fit the more typical format, you know, uh, you know, where you know exactly who the antagonist and the protagonist is, and that, and that um, it has the same type of resolution. Um, mm-hmm. You're not really sure what's going to really happen in this movie. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't know this for sure, but I personally think it's probably one of the earliest movies where you know it has an unresolved ending. You know, um, you know, usually lots of times films. Going to be commercial people they have to have a happy ending and you know it's hard to say and, but it's yeah i mean it's also throughout the movie is very bleak i mean there's there is no the only levity you get i think is uh pat hitchcock which is alfred hitchcock's daughter playing that uh like marion's co-worker and kind of talking about what hers going on with her life and oh he didn't he was flirting with you he must have noticed my wedding ring like little subtle things like that like that's the only bit of really kind of the typical Hollywood film I think that you get in this movie is that the, the scenes that happen in that office uh, and but even then you know um, Hitchcock is laying the groundwork for what's happening later because the uh, I forget the man's name but the business associate that comes in there he's like oh I want to pay for this in cash that kind of thing uh, he's explaining to Marion about how oh you know I just buy happiness it's like and he's talking about um, you know uh, this is also buying off unhappiness which is essentially what Marion is doing in this film with his money uh you know it, it, just in those scenes he's, he's establishing motivations and pushing the characters forward while kind of lulling you into his false sense of security like look this is a little office and you got the quirky co-worker and things like that um kind of that's but that's the only little taste you get of uh, i guess traditional hollywood trappings probably another reason why the studios didn't like psychos that you know it doesn't have the traditional hollywood beats in the script at the very beginning right you know? You're not really sure where he's going with this, you know. And traditional Hollywood script style, you know, you have to start giving hints of what's going to come later. So, yeah, I so Marion leaves town. She ditches the car. Yeah, you, like you said, the plot-wise, it's very much she takes, she, she's got a boyfriend. She takes the money. She leaves town. She stops at a hotel. She gets killed. And then it's kind of like what happened to Marion becomes the driving force of the plot. So what do you, let's talk about Anthony Perkins' performance in this film. Like, you know, the first time I looked this up, I was really surprised to see that he wasn't even nominated for an Oscar that year. I know she, uh, Janet Lee was, Hitchcock was, I was up for cinematography and set decoration, none of which it won. And I know Hitchcock famously never got a Best Director Oscar, which is usually the example people go to when they're like, oh, did you, Tarantino and this other one and Nolan, they, none of them have Oscars. Like, well, neither does Hitchcock and he, or Kubrick, I don't think either, uh, which, you know, is kind of astounding considering the uh, impact that they've had on cinema. So uh, I, I really like the way that Hitchcock Cast, cast uh, Anthony Perkins 
and kind of with his boyish good looks and really subverts that. Because I know in the novel by Robert Block that the Norman Bates character is supposed to be like four in his mid 40s and kind of, you know, overweight and like, you know, not nearly as um, deceptively nice, you know. And I, and I think uh, I think that's what really sells that that character in this film and makes him um both terrifying but also kind of endearing. I mean, I mean, well, not really terrifying until the end because you don't know what the hell's going on for most of the movie. But he wasn't that well known at the time when he was cast. But I, but like you said, you know, uh, Albert Hitchcock thought that he could pull off that type of role. And uh, and and to speak to the fact that you know Albert Hitchcock never won any Academy Awards because you know even back then winning Academy Awards was very political. You had to be like a Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Hollywood insiders, someone they knew how to smooth the system, kind of like the Coen brothers, you know, they're very Hollywood. But I think that in terms of, you know, some of the the, the characters that, that uh, the acting that takes place in a lot of Alfred shot movies, I think that he's able to really elicit uh, the type of uh, performance out of the characters by the fact that his storyboards were, were notoriously no pun intended, because that's one of his favorite, my favorite movies. Like, <laughs> with his storyboards, his storyboards were so meticulous that people had already seen the movie. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that's, yeah, and that attention to detail really comes across on the screen. Um, one of my favorite scenes in the movie, you know, you, you mentioned uh, uh, early on that your favorite scene is like the big reveal and the way that that happens with the slow creaking of the chair turning around and uh, the light kind of swinging. One of my favorite scenes is just probably the most dialogue heavy scene in the film is the, uh, the parlor scene with Marion and, uh, and Norman where they're having the whole conversation about his mother and, um, you know, the boy's best friend is his mother, a classic line. And there's, there's so much uh, subtlety that happens in their interactions in the hotel or in the motel, um, before the murder even takes place. I mean, you have the moment where she says she's from Los Angeles, and he seems kind of titillated by that, hesitates and grabs the cabin one key, um, obviously because of the peephole. And, uh, you know, when she's talking about, he, he's giving her a tour of the room, and she's like, oh, this is the, you know, the desk, this is the bed, da, da, da. this is the, uh, and he, like, hesitates to say bathroom, which makes me wonder, how many <laughs> how many women has he murdered in this in this shower? Like, is this, you know, is this uh, a pattern that repeats itself over and over again? I mean, we learned by the end of the film that there are at least two other uh, missing, you know, missing girls in this in this town that have just disappeared. And presumably, you know, uh, the mother um, confessed to that to those. Um, There's just a lot of little little details as far as, you know, the taxidermy theme and and to him comparing, oh, the, my mom says my mother is as, as harmless as one of those stuffed birds. Yeah. Obvious foreshadowing. I, and I, I love the the way he goes from um, very genial and welcoming and kind of shy because he's talking to this, you know, to a beautiful woman and uh, to, to sort of getting irritated and, and getting like uh, there's like this undercurrent of rage kind of simmering when she brings up. Why don't you why don't you send uh, send your mother someplace? And that his reaction to that. I, I really found that uh, that scene's always one of the ones that I found the, find the most compelling and I think is one of the best arguments for why Perkins uh, made such an impact in this role. Yeah, well, you know, it makes you think that, you know, what was going on in his mind when while this was happening, if these were real, yeah. these were real characters, you know. You know, in many sense, you know, I guess this is where our Freudian psychology is going to chime in because, you know, you know, you have the fact that you're thinking in the back of the mind that this man is very mentally disturbed, and that, that and that when he sees an attractive woman, you know, he gets these voices in his head that 
that's why I think sometimes the richness of, this, of really good movies is seen more than once. Because then when you go back and see it, you probably think, that's probably what he is probably thinking. And, and, and that what actually makes you a better filmmaker because that you're trying to convey that type of emotion on screen through the actor's um, uh, acting. Um, that that's probably what's going on in, in his head. And I think that's what creates the, the suspense. Um, and, and in many ways, I think that the reason why Alfred Hitchcock is able to do that is because I think he's pro- he personally is a sexually impressed. He's probably thinking of his own, what would I, what I would be doing if I were um, president of a woman that I wanted to kill? You know, how would you behave? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, many, you know, I often read too that it really had a big influence on people going to the field of psychi- of abnormal behavior, psychologists of abnormal behavior. Um, you know, based on this movie, you know, that became a very popular interest. You know, um, people wanted to look into the lives of serial killers. And, you know, all these other macabre people who do crime. Because, you know, it fascinated people, you know, what was in the mind, you know. <clears throat> but, you know, before Sigmund Freud, you know, um, you know, <laughs> getting back to him. You know, so <laughs> yeah, many, yeah, bring it yes, back. So many people thought that a lot of um, abnormal behavior was, was had a supernatural origin. You know, um, a lot of people didn't think that it had a lot to do with, you know, their upbringing or childhood or any traumatic right. incidences until Stephen Freud came along. And uh, and that's what this movie actually says. Oh, he's he's, motiv- he's motivated to murder because of early trauma in his life. You know, the fact that right. yeah, he allegedly had caught his mother having an affair and they took on this type of um, persona of his mother. Okay. Yeah, and it's almost like he's possessive of his mother, so he projects that she's the exact same way yeah. uh, towards him. Um, and it's interesting too, you know, with the with the character of the mother, character in quotes mother. Um, you know, I, I you know I read that um, Hitchcock used a composite of I think three different actresses' voices to get the right tone of mother's voice, mm-hmm. and I, he was even te- making teases to pr- protect the 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 um the big reveal he was even like teasing oh maybe maybe this actress i'm talking to for this role of mrs bates and and you know to the point that he was getting like lots of actresses try wanting to audition for the role uh which is a non-existent part obviously and um you know then there's the the famous disclaimer uh before the theater uh in during the theatrical run so going since you mentioned the the psychology part of it uh what do you think of the the scene at the end where the psychiatrist comes out and basically explains everything about like oh I got the whole story from the mother and she's he's split in two and and the, you know one of the police officers says he's a tra- oh he's a transvestite which again must have been was another I think a term that the studio gave a little pushback on at the time um, and had to you know Hitchcock had to kind of finesse why that was a necessary part of the script um, but that psychiatrist scene at the end a lot of people like. You know, and I remember hearing this when I watched the film initially in class. Um, it, a lot of people criticize that scene as one of like the weakest in the film, and one that Hitchcock, you know, one of the one of Hitchcock's like, like I guess uh, sourest moments in film, just because it goes so far. That's for a film that really, really doles out information sparingly and kind of lets you know challenges you to try and keep up with it. The fact that at the end he's like lays all his cards on the table. Uh, what do you? How do you feel about the criticism to that to that scene? Do you think it was handled well? Is it all over? People overreacting, or do you do you like the way do you like the way it plays out? Huh. <laughs> A lot today. Yeah. Um, 
You know, you know, it's hard to to um, push back against film criticism because, you know, those of us who are big Albert Hitchcock lovers, uh, especially we go to YouTube videos and people ask for you to rank your favorite Hitchcock movies top ten, you'll never get the same top ten from the same two people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to answer your question, <laughs> what did I think about the, the explanation? I think to some extent Alfred Hitchcock probably felt that, you know, um, he probably knew that the movie was going to be hard to follow, and uh, he was breaking new material. So he probably had to add something that kind of explained, you know, um, why Norman Bates was so mentally disturbed. And, uh, right. and it had to put it within a context that seemed plausible. That you know that he wasn't someone who was sexually aroused by being his mother. He actually thought he was his, his mother, which in many ways was probably a lot more. It's probably a lot more disturbing. Mm-hmm. You know, I I actually think that's probably why some of these Hollywood sequels in the Baseball Tale um, aren't as good, because it assumes that that type of maniacal character that Norman Bates took on his mother was authentically his mother's personality. That could have been, mm-hmm. I personally think that could have been just his interpretation of his mother. Yeah, no, I, I wonder, you know, if, if Hitchcock was making this movie, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later, or obviously now, I, I very much doubt that that psychiatrist scene would be in there in its current form. Right. Uh, if anything, I think it would be very, very brief. But yeah, I feel like it's a it's a sign of uh, the times and the fact that the studio <laughs> the studio knew that audiences were going to be really thrown for a loop when Norman Bates shows up in a wig and in his mother's clothes in that in that fruit cellar. And, uh, you know, they needed a way for Hitchcock to sort of soften the blow before they see sends people out into the theaters. Uh, I do really, really love um, so much of what Hitchcock pulled off throughout this film as far as like Arbogast and the uh, the interrogation scene with um, with Norman and uh, the, the, that very surreal effect of Arbogast falling down the stairs that that uh, has, you know, created one of the one of the most iconic moments in the film but i what i what i really love and i you know sometimes I, I mess with my wife by showing her the image from the very end of the movie where norman's sitting there is that the way you you hear his mother's voice in his head like he has fully transitioned over to that personality and norman is is, is gone so in a way, it's like you have the, the fruit cellar moment that amps up the tension. Then you have the psychiatrist explanation that kind of brings us back down and be like, all right, now it all sort of makes sense. And, but he's, he still kind of has his cake and, and eats it, too, by having uh, by still sending you out of the theater with like this haunting image of this man who's like completely snapped and is, you know, fully obviously psycho by the end of the film. Uh, what, how do you feel about, you know, what do you think about that that last that final that final moment with him sitting there uh, refusing to swat the fly, that whole thing. Cause I, I just think that's one of the most, one of the most effective final moments of any horror film ever. Oh, absolutely. For one thing, you know, he looks, he looks at the camera, but um, <laughs> it's perfect. Uh, but, but, you know, also too, let me just mention one thing. I did read an interview of Albert Hitchcock, you know, on that scene where Martin um, Belson's character falls down the stairs. Uh, he shot that from the perspective of, the actors, but the ending of the movie, I, I personally always I often think that any filmmaker, I don't know if a student, I don't care if it's a student filmmaking making their first film at the time, or Steven Spielberg, is that you always want your final part of your movie to have some type of leave some type of impression on mm-hmm. on the viewers. I just think that 
the impression he wanted to leave is that, you know, this could be anybody, you know, uh, who has this type of psychosis and he's just repressing it. So, and that's probably a lot more scary to people say, you know, other than the supernatural, you know, this person is, has agreed that he's going to just cloak his, he's going to just disguise his, his psychosis. And, and you all, and you all, the viewers should be scared of that. <laughs> I think that's, mm-hmm. oh yeah. He's hiding it well. Um, yep. So before we before we wrap up, is there, is there anything specific about the film that you wanted to to mention? I think uh, I think we kind of touched on most of my notes. Um, I of course wanted to mention that the famous thing that uh, you know he used chocolate syrup in, in place of blood, which which is interesting because people you know that that shower scene with the the stabbing of the strings and uh, just the way that that the way that that scene is constructed, it it, it almost it feels like you're really seeing blood go down the drain. So ultimately finding out that it's chocolate syrup because it, 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 um, it has more of a, a blood-like texture, uh, something that catches the, uh, you know, that shows up on film in the same way with running down the drain and everything. I think it's, it's just an interesting, an interesting little factoid that I wanted to make sure I mentioned on this episode. Is there anything else that you want to uh, throw out there? I think the, con- the, the contribution of Psycho to film how rich any movie could be. And I think that's what um, Alfred Hitchcock wanted to make. I think he wanted to make a movie that had many, many layers to it and something that he knew would be steady from years from now, even 60 years in the future. (laughs) I know, here we are talking about it. But I think the richness of Psycho is that, you know, it puts you in, in the mind of filmmakers at that time. And you start to think, you know, boy, this movie must have really... uh, jarred people. And I can't think of any movie now or that comes out now in 2019 or any other movie. Except for maybe with Star Wars. Um, mm-hmm. That makes people think, wow, this must have been a very powerful movie at the time. Yeah, um, it was it, it was very much a, a cultural phenomenon and insanely ahead of its time. I mean, like as you said, we're here now almost 60 years later still talking about it and dissecting it and, and marveling at, uh, at everything he accomplished. So... Very much, I agree with you on that. Um, yeah, yeah. And if you're listening to this podcast, you're obviously a fan of movies, and so you should have seen Psycho already. If you haven't, we heartily recommend you check it out, uh, as well as some of the other Hitchcock films that Roderick mentioned. So, uh, before we say goodbye, Roderick, uh, where can people find you on the internet if they want to connect with you and follow up with uh, what you're in, what you're involved with these days? Uh, well, I have a website. It's I have a website. It's my name, Roderick DX. So it's R-O-D-R-E-C-K-Z-X dot com or dot WordPress dot com. Well, Roderick, thank you so much for uh, coming on the Crooked Table podcast. This is this was actually one. This is actually one of my favorite movies as well. So uh, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about it. Absolutely. Have right. back. Have you, have you back one again. There's other movies that I like to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it, it's every right now. I'm cycling through new guests, but believe me, I will definitely be going through and uh, and bringing new people on, uh, or bringing you know old favorites on. And this was a great conversation. So I think I think listeners will really get a lot out of it. I, I wrote a paper actually on the black exploitation films in the 1970s. So really, yeah. that'd be interesting to see. If you want to talk about that? Let me know. Absolutely, absolutely. Keep that in mind. That's a little tease for a future appearance. Okay, Roderick. (laughs) 
All right, man. Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks so much. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of crookedtable.com. All rights reserved. Z-R-O-O-K-E-D. 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 Z-R-O